G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision Christian Radio. A very perceptive question, Neil. I think that's exactly right. I've, I've, I've thought that repeatedly over the years as we've done this project. His insights, which come from, from the fact that he, he comes from a different Christian environment, and the difference is, is something which highlights the reality in Australia. You wouldn't see that reality if it weren't for the differences between the two. One of the major themes of our history, for example, is the, is the impact of evangelical Anglicanism, which, as you know, is very strong in Sydney, in the Diocese of Sydney. But in, in America, the Episcopal Church, the equivalent of the Anglican Church in America, of course, was uh, disadvantaged because it was on the wrong side in the American Revolution. And so the, Episcopal, the Episcopalian Church in America has not been strongly evangelical. In Australia, it has been, and it, it's more of an establishment church, and so that has given a particular tone, I think, to Australian Christianity, which is different from American. Uh, just, uh, this might be a little aside, but when you talk about mm. the evangelicalism of Anglicanism in Sydney, and uh, people who look at the Anglican Church, they can see differences uh, state to state, and Sydney Anglicans, uh, they do stand out. Is this because they just trace their roots right back to uh, the arrival of the First Fleet and the sort of Christianity that arrived on our shores? Is there sort of a, a jealousy to try and maintain some of those wonderful roots? Mm, another good question, Neil. I, I think that is true. I, I don't think it's the only reason why Sydney Anglicanism is distinctive. I think that it's become increasingly that way over the decades, and there have been significant moments uh, and, and significant archbishops and so on who have who have uh, focused Sydney Anglicans on the evangelical gospel in a way that we haven't had in other parts of Australia. But the but the first. The, the origins of Christianity in Australia with the First Fleet was very important because it was it was a public form of Christianity. It was evangelicalism is of course in, incredibly an intense individual form of personal relationship with Jesus. But by the time uh, the evangelical movement had arrived at the at the First Fleet by 1788, it had already become a public movement. It was already beginning to influence wider society. And Wilberforce was then beginning to wonder about what he would do with his life. And uh, it was then that he said about beginning the abolition of the slave trade. But all that, that motivation to abolish the slave trade was also then put into uh, other areas of um, reform in society. The evangelicals were chronic reformers. They wanted to know what they could reform next. They wanted to change everything into the likeness of the kingdom of God. And so they began with prison reform, and then it made them think about transportation. Transportation was more merciful than hanging, which most people, unfortunate enough to be in prisons, copped in those days. And so the evangelicals at first favoured transportation, and therefore they, they, they supported the move to Australia. But then they said about abolishing transportation after that had been going for some time as well because they're the, the chronic reform people. But in my book, I go right back to 1740, I think Australia 
doesn't begin in 1788. Um, and of course, our Aboriginal brothers and sisters would say it began 60,000 years ago. But at least as far as evangelical history is concerned, it goes right back to the origins of the evangelical movement and the Great Awakening of uh, 1740 and 1740s. Now, if my history serves correct, if we go back to that uh, 1740 time, this was right in the middle of what they called the Gin Age, uh, in especially in England, uh, where they were going through a dreadful time, uh, chaos uh, when it comes to a legal environment and the way that people treated each other and the uh, res- the surge of uh, alcoholism that was affecting a community, and, and of course that was the sort of seedbed for evangelicalism to emerge there uh, under the leadership of John Wesley. So, do you do you include John Wesley in the way that you talk about the history that begins to shape Australia? Absolutely. Uh, John Wesley is a, a very important uh, figure in all of this. He, he not only was about reform, but he was and, and dealing with problems like the alcohol abuse, which, as you ha- have identified, was a very major problem in England at the time. Uh, he, he was all about social uplift. And indeed, his brother Charles, who, as you know, wrote the 9,000 hymns, which um, Wesleyans love to sing and most of us in all churches love to sing. He wrote, he wrote a hymn which says, Jesus comes with all his grace, comes to save a fallen race, object of our glorious hope. Jesus comes to lift us up. It's all about uplift, social uplift. And the Methodist movement had a tremendous impact on, on elevating people who were at the bottom rungs of society. So Wesley was heard gladly by you know, tens of thousands, as you know, sometimes at one time when he preached, and same with, uh, with, with Whitfield. But it's all about uh, social uplift. And so they're the ideal people, really, when you come to think of it, to be involved in the first settlement in Australia, which, was, uh, which could have been pretty inauspicious, given the nature of the people who were brought out at that time. But they were very quickly transformed into a very respectable society, really. And it's largely, I think, because of this optimistic reformist form of Christianity which values change and believes that change is possible. Well, I suspect listeners are thinking, wow, because this idea of social uplift and as you use words like chronic reforming and uh, those sorts of things, they just uh, they just uh, resonate so powerfully when we talk about our Christian heritage in Australia. But let me bring you to the now, because there is really very much a move to revise history. And this revisionism, it seems to be rife in when we talk about Australian history. And there's like a movement to diminish the influence of our Christian heritage. Uh, your book's going to go a long way in academic circles to address some of that. But, but what do you think about the way that somehow rather uh, humanist revisionism has been rife in Australia? I, I, I think actually that um, this, is, this has been a chronic problem in the writing of Australian history. It's not, it's not a new thing this opposition to Christianity or this blindness to the relevance of Christianity in our society. It's been going on for a long time. It's not only an Australian problem, incidentally. Uh, I've actually been involved for the last 15 years in the ancient history department at Macquarie University, and it's been very interesting because you can see how these problems go way back. And when the Christians took over the Roman Empire, there were those who thought, you know, this Christian business has made no difference whatsoever. Or, and there were those who said, well, if it didn't make any difference, it worsened it. It, made, it, was, a, it was a problem. It, it, it was a negative impact. 
And that has been the attitude of many historians to the impact of Christianity throughout the ages. They wanted to say it's either irrelevant and weak, which is what a lot of people say about Australia, about Christianity in Australia. It's, it's weak, it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. Or if it, if it does matter, if it is relevant, then it's, then it's dangerous and, and destructive and, and a, negative, a negative force. So this is something which I think has been around for a long time. I think actually Australians have been fairly fair about Christianity until relatively recently, and that's because we value a fair go in Australia, and we've given Christians a fair go, and I think that's, be- that's largely because we have Christian values, and Christian values are concerned with, with fairness, um, and so Christians have benefited from their own values, as it were. But recently, um, this is coming back to your point where you talk about revisionism, you see it as a, as a obviously a, a great problem in the present, which of course it is. Uh, then I think recently people have come to the conclusion: not only is Christianity weak and irrelevant, but it's actually harmful. We'd be better we'd be better off without it. It's a very important time in our society to think through that instead of becoming terribly emotional about it. I mean, it's, it, emotion is totally justified because of the awful revelations of the sexual abuse um, uh, and child abuse uh, royal commission and uh, people can be justified in thinking why support these churches they've done all this harm so it's, it's very important I think for us to think about it and what I would want to say is the reason why we have this problem of course is because uh, Christians were the ones who were responsible for looking after these people they, many of them were abused, but if they had not been looking after them at all, then these people, they probably wouldn't have lived. That's, how, that's what happened in the early Roman Empire. Uh, the Christians were the ones who started the orphanages because, in classical thought, you just exposed people to the elements if they were weak in any way. just let them die. So, and if people were without parents, you just let them die. It's the Christians who changed all that. And then the Christians then created this problem for themselves, I guess, by uh, not... not uh, doing what the Lord wanted them to do and, and love these children in the way that the Lord wanted them to. I think this is the point, that all the way through history, what Christianity has done, and Christians believe it through the divine love, they have, they have generated a quantity and a quality of love and compassion, in, and therefore charity and so on, uh, which doesn't happen in communities which don't have that Christian presence. So I, I've actually done studies of you know, Australian value studies in the 1980s particularly which showed the difference between what churchgoers contribute to Australian society and what non-churchgoers contribute. And non-churchgoers don't like one saying this because it sounds intolerant, but the, the social capital which is generated by churchgoers is far greater than that generated by non-churchgoers. A biblical perspective of life, culture and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. This, I think, is a very fascinating question, Neil, and uh, it, it goes to the very heart of our book. We made a discovery early in the piece. In fact, it was one of the discoveries I made just before I started to write the book. I asked uh, my history class when I was at the University of Wollongong to write a history of a local church. Uh, there was a course on Australian religious history. And um, we put together a book called Faith of Steel. But when we looked at all the churches and, and 
and looked at the dates when they were created, we found that, that all the churches in one particular area, one particular community, they were all formed about the same time. And then someone would come along and say, look, our little church, our humble weatherboard house church is not what we want. We want a stone Gothic church. So they would pull their church down. And then all the other people who had churches around them, they did the same thing. And it was quite amazing to see this. It was, it was when you look at it on a graph, it's just quite, quite dramatic. And I've, I've found since there's a very good reason for this, and that was that um, in Australian society, uh, going way back, when it, when it was necessary to moralise this convict population, then the way to do it, people thought at the time, the way to do it was to Christianise it. And therefore, Governor Burke came up with his church acts in 1836-37. And what he actually did was he paid for the building of churches in communities where they had a significant number of Anglicans, Church of England, Methodists, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, and those four churches, uh, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, they were built in even very small communities. And often if you go to a country town, you see these churches on opposite corners. You often wonder what, what, what that was all about. Well, they were all built as a result of this, I think. But historians, when they look at this, of course, Australian historians who are, they think constantly in terms of secularisation and so on, they think this is the beginning of the end. This means that the Anglican Church is no longer ruling society and therefore this is the beginning of secularisation. But Governor Burke didn't think that way at all. Governor Burke was a very devout man. He had prayer meetings in, his, in, in the government house. His wife was a was the daughter of the evangelical Prime Minister of England, Spencer Percival. He was a very devout character, and he believed that the way to uh, lift, give an uplift to this community was to Christianise it, and therefore he made all this provision for churches and ministers. What this meant was, if you think through it, what this meant was that Australians, even in small communities, were incredibly well provided with ministry. And as a result of that, you had all these four ministers. This is so different from what happened in England, by the way where they came from. In England, you have one church in most communities, it's a church of England. This is a completely different situation. Uh, and it meant that Australians became incredibly Christianised in terms of values because you had all these ministers who were teaching them Christian values all the time. But then historians who are not happy with that, they say, I mean, they've never thought of that part of it but because they don't emphasise those sort of positives. But what they've also said is, well, look, this is the creation of sectarianism. You have all these churches, they're all arguing with each other. Uh, and because historians love conflict, you see. So they love talking about areas of conflict. And of course, there has been plenty of sectarianism in Australian history, particularly between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Although I think there are, there's something you can say on the other side of that as well. But as far as the other churches were concerned, they had this common sentiment, evangelical sentiment. They were basically evangelical churches. They were not in competition with each other. They were learning from each other. They were not sectarian. They were looking at what each other was doing. They were learning from it. And they were putting it into practice. I call it in the book holy emulation. They were emulating each other or sanctified competition because it actually meant that Australians were were blessed as a result of this form of competition just as they're blessed in the commercial world by a, a competition which brings down prices. So this competition increased the volume of ministry in Australia. And Australia, as a result, I think, became incredibly Christianised. I mean, I'd love to talk to you at great length about what that means. Because <laughs> well, Australians, 
It's very exciting to hear you reflecting on Governor Burke because he would be not very widely discussed and spoken about, but would he be one of those key figures in our history then when you talk about Christian leaders, a key figure who really made a huge difference by creating opportunity there for that, as you call it, a sanctified competition, which sounds to me to be very exciting. Yes, I I think he was a very important person, but a lot of governors... Uh, got on very well with the Christians, and the Christians got on very well with the governors. There, there is a, an understanding that in Australia you have the separation of church and state, and there's a sense in which that's true because it's important, I guess, for the state not to tell people what to believe. You've got freedom of religious belief, and so you don't get that dictating from the from the state, and that's true in Australia. But the real history of the relationship between church and state in Australia is not so much the separation of the two, it's the interdependence of the two, seeking to cooperate with each other in order to build a nation. That, I think, is the more exciting part of the story. And I think that Governor Burke was one who... See, not all governors have gone this way. Uh, The second governor in New South Wales, Gross, was a bit of a problem. And, And... Governor Philip is normally said to be an Enlightenment figure rather than a strong Christian. I, I don't think that's necessarily right, but that's what—that's the stereotype. Mm. But most governors and most governments in Australian history, until relatively recently, have been very pro-Christian, and they cooperated in order to build a, a happy society. So when you have the Education Acts, for example, of the, the Secular Education Acts. 1880 in New South Wales and dates close to that in other states, colonies in Australia. What they were, what they were doing, what the public education system was doing, was actually giving the opportunity for the communication of agreed Christian values, agreed Protestant Christian values, and I think that held sway in Australia until the 19th. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.